American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about the time when the American president intervened to prevent the Italian government from confiscating the American seminary building in Rome. This is something that just sounds odd in our present context. Not so much wondering why the church in America would own a building in Rome to use as a seminary, but why would the U.S. president get involved in whether or not the Italian government confiscated the building? It's a really cool story and how it all came together, looking at the large movements and events happening at the time, which sort of crashed together and pinned something so seemingly small as this one piece of property in such a position. And it all begins with the fall of Rome. The fall of Rome. Like I said, big things happening here. Bear with me. So after the power base of the Roman Empire shifted east to Constantinople, and then eventually the city of Rome fell in the 5th century, the Pope became the last continuous figure of authority on the Italian peninsula. He, as the head of the church, was certainly the largest landowner and the wealthiest individual. So over the ensuing centuries, the papacy took on a more prominent role as a secular ruler in his own right, rather than as essentially just a major nobleman within someone else's kingdom. Eventually, the papal states became a thing within the nexus of the Holy Roman Empire, and the pope became the temporal ruler of most of the Italian peninsula. So kingdoms came and went, dynasties rose and fell, with some enduring more than others. But the papal states endured for about 1,000 to 1,400 years, depending on when you date its beginning. Right. But beginning in the early 1800s, after the defeat of Napoleon and the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, things began to change. Nationalist movements began pushing for unification, including on the Italian peninsula. Revolutionaries began picking off nation states and joining them to the kingdom of Sardinia in pursuit of a unified kingdom of Italy. Eventually, all that remained were the Venetians in the northeast and the last vestige of the ancient papal states in a long rectangle in the center of the peninsula along the Tyrrhenian coast. Pius IX was pope beginning in 1846, and his papacy lasted until 1878, so he would have been pope for the bulk of the major events we're talking about here. Exactly. The first major moves toward unification began with the revolutions of 1848, and basically ended in 1870 when Rome was taken by force and the papal states ceased to exist. Okay, so that brings us closer to the present, and now our timeline overlaps with the church beginning to grow in America. The church in America was established with the Diocese of Baltimore in 1789, but by 1850, there were 30 American dioceses and archdioceses, so the need for many well-trained priests was great. And it was in the 1850s that the American interest in this story begins. Many nations had their own colleges set up in Rome for the training of priests. Men would go to live in community in Rome while they were studying. Then, once ordained, they would return to their home countries. Many of them, when their homelands fell to the Protestant zeitgeist, returned to near certain martyrdom. The organ of the church that oversaw all of these efforts was, and still is, the sacred congregation for the propagation of the faith. It is frequently called by its Latin name, the Propaganda Fidei, or just the Propaganda for short. Up to 1859, any Americans who were sent to Rome to study for the priesthood lived at the College of the Propaganda. 
But as the church in America grew rapidly in the first half of the 19th century, the need for a college of their own grew also. Certain American prelates began to organize efforts to make this a reality. Chief among them, the Archbishop of Baltimore, Francis Kenrick, and one of my favorites, the first Archbishop of New York, John Hughes. These two major prelates worked here at home to gain support for this project, and then they had the opportunity to propose the idea to the Pope himself. In 1854, they were in Rome for the solemn promulgation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, and while there, in a private audience, they took the opportunity to propose the idea to Pope Pius IX. (laughs) Now, as a side note, I can't think of many more mismatched pairs of personalities to work together on this as Kenrick and Hughes. Kenrick was a studious and reserved man with a conciliatory nature, whereas John Hughes, known as Dagger John, due to the shape of the cross he wrote next to his signature, was a brash and assertive Irishman, and he had been a better gardener than a student when back at Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Their differing approaches to dealing with anti-Catholic government leaders and unruly mobs bent on burning down churches is a dramatic story we'll tell another time. But these two, with their aid of other American bishops notably Michael O'Connor of Pittsburgh, who was an alumnus of the Propagandist College in Rome, enthusiastically petitioned Rome to help them make this a reality. To make it clear to Rome that the endeavor would be funded and supported by the Americans, they organized fundraising efforts and took up collections throughout the diocese of the United States. Both they and the Pope saw this new establishment as a good way to both ensure the quality formation of American priests and to increase the connection between the papacy and the church in America. Pius IX was enthused about the idea. In 1857, he directed the propaganda to purchase a former Visitandine convent on the Via Dumilita near the Trevi Fountain for $42,000. The propaganda, in turn, made a permanent loan of the building to the American bishops for usage as a college. The building had most recently been used as a barracks for the French troops who had been garrisoned in Rome to aid in the defense of the Papal States, but they had been recalled to France. So the American bishops devoted nearly $50,000 to renovations and restorations of the building, and on December 8, 1859, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, the American College opened with 13 students. So to be clear, the college was operated, maintained, and financed by Americans and it served American students, but the building and property itself remained in the hands of the propaganda. You got it. So now we will start to see these different movements coming to a head. In 1866 and 1867, the anti-clerical government of the still-unifying Kingdom of Italy passed laws which allowed the government to confiscate property owned by religious organizations. Once the Kingdom of Italy took Rome in 1870 and made Rome the capital in 1871, the task became to formally identify and confiscate all of those properties held for so long by the church. As a quick side note, when the forces of the Italian government were closing in on Rome and it was clear the end was near, the 13 American seminarians presented themselves to Pope Pius IX and offered their services as soldiers to defend Rome. The Pope appreciated their offer, but declined, reminding them that they were in training to fight a much more important battle. I love that. Pius IX fought tooth and nail to keep Rome and would not give in to the anti-clerical Italians. But even in extremis, he understood what was ultimately important and made no exception. Anyhow, so the propaganda took the matter of confiscation to court, arguing that the property that they held should not fall under the law. As such cases can, the matter dragged on for many years. While the matter was working its way through the courts, things proceeded more or less as usual for the American college. 
But in 1884, a decision was finally handed down. The propaganda's property was subject to the law and therefore could be confiscated. And near the top of the list of properties to be confiscated and sold was the American College. The man in charge at the American College at the time, Father Augustin Schultz, was only a pro-rector because the rector had died suddenly and Schultz had been his assistant. Father Schultz was a tender 28 years old and was only a few years removed from his own graduation for the American College and his own ordination. But he proved up to the challenge. He hung an American flag across the doors of the building in protest. He then contacted the Cardinal Protector of the American College, who in turn cabled New York, where John Cardinal McCloskey had succeeded Archbishop Hughes as Archbishop of New York. McCloskey was very old and feeble by this point, so his coadjutor, Archbishop Michael Corrigan, showed the cablegram to a friend of his, George Bliss, who was a high-powered attorney in New York. One communication led to another, and the matter landed on the resolute desk in front of President Chester A. Arthur. The letter from Archbishop Corrigan to President Arthur entreated the president to ask the King of Italy for a stay of proceedings, if it be not possible furthermore to exempt the institution as virtually American property from the operation of the law. Now, Chester Arthur was son of an immigrant from the north of Ireland who was Presbyterian, but who became a Baptist preacher and was an ardent abolitionist. President Arthur himself was officially Episcopalian, but it seems he wasn't particularly religious. So to him, the matter was purely one of American citizens having their property taken by the nation's Italian government. Arthur directed his Secretary of State, Frederick Freilingheisen, man, that's fun to say, Frederick Freilingheisen, <laughs> to communicate with the American minister in Rome, William Waldorf Astor. And this William Waldorf Astor was a member of the fabulously wealthy Astor family. He was a great grandson of John Jacob Astor, the founder of the family fortune. Yes, William had tried his hand at politics, but lost two consecutive bids for Congress. He was just 34 years old when, in 1882, President Arthur appointed him minister to Italy. Arthur seemingly saw it as a consolation prize, telling Astor, Go enjoy yourself, my boy. Whether or not Astor was enjoying himself, it certainly was a stroke of luck, or providence, that one so connected and so influential was the American minister in Rome at this time. Freilingheisen's message to Astor directed him to use his influence with his contacts in Rome. As Freilingheisen put it, Although technically the American college is held by the propaganda, it is virtually American property, and its reduction would be attended with the sacrifice of interests almost exclusively American. So basically their contention was that while technically, yes, the propaganda held the deed to the property, since the Americans had put more money into renovating it than the propaganda had spent to buy it, and since the building was administered, maintained, and used exclusively by Americans for the benefit of Americans, it ought not be seen as property of the propaganda for purposes of the laws in question. Astor's words and other methods of persuasion of whatever sort had the desired effect. And on March 28, 1884, just two months after the Italian court had issued the ruling which imperiled the American college, Astor was able to cable back to Freilingheisen that the American college had been exempted. In the aftermath of this victory, the American College took measures to solidify itself as an American entity that could stand on its own. In October of 1884, Pope Leo XIII issued the decree which established the American College as a pontifical college, and in 1886, the Maryland legislature specially established it as a nonprofit corporation with the title, The American College of the Roman Catholic Church of the United States. 
Since that time, the American college grew considerably until, after the massive increase in vocations following World War II, it was necessary to build an entirely new, much larger campus for what is now known as the Pontifical North American College. The new campus is on the Janiculum Hill, which overlooks St. Peter's Basilica. The original building, now known as the Casa Santa Maria, is still considered part of the North American College, but it is now used as housing for priests who are in Rome to study for advanced degrees. Many hundreds of priests and a great many bishops who have served the church in the United States are alumni of this institution, which was only saved due to the quick actions of the American president. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And support the many productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about President Arthur and the American College, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit sqpn.com history. We also love feedback and hearing about cool Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. Frederick Freeling Heisen. Hey, what, what, do you, what do you call a very tiny insect that travels to religious sites? A pilgrimage.